All right, I want to share with you a passage out of 2 Timothy this morning very briefly, but I want to ask you first to think of something in your own life because it's referred to in this text. And so the first one of those is I want you to think in your life and, and as, assuming that most of us are believers, some of us may still be seeking, may still be searching and wondering about this relationship with Christ, and we've not settled that yet. That's possible, but I think this could still apply to you because if you're seeking, there has been something or someone that has had some sort of move or influence in your, in your world that has moved you to this place of seeking and searching. But I want you to think about people in your life, or maybe there's just a person, I don't know, who to you, as you have been seeking and searching, or as you have been growing and maturing as a believer in Christ, who have been a good example to you, who have been perhaps a mentor, a teacher, a partner. Who are those people in your life that you would think of? It's, uh, it's interesting that you guys are here today because there's a name that I will throw out here from my history of someone who, who blessed me tremendously as a young man and then blessed us as a young couple because of her godliness and care and compassion for us and the people around her. And uh, that's Miss Tina Mai, right? Uh, she was back with us at Faith Baptist Church all those years ago. And, uh, you know, I can remember talking about when Stephen was born. Like, she, she would be in the nursery. She was the only one allowed to touch him in the nursery, to hold him, you know. Uh, but she just had this. She had a relationship with Jesus that was different than other people I knew. And it, but it showed in her life and the way that she interacted with those of us around her. I think of, uh, we were just talking about this guy yesterday, my, my really my most direct mentor in ministry, Sam Jones, uh, who was youth pastor at Faith Baptist Church and came along right about the time Karen and I were aging out of being youth and we were being, Jason has talked about this before, we were being foisted into a, 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 what was called a college and career class, but there weren't a lot of college people in there and the careers were a little sketchy. Um, hey, you were young, you weren't even there yet. But, uh, you know, we went like one Sunday and said, well, that's not for us. And Sam, I guess in his wisdom, noticed that we were, we were sort of floundering, foundering, whatever it was, and asked us to, if we wanted to come and help in student ministry. And, uh, and I jumped into teaching seventh and eighth grade boys Sunday school. And uh, Karen, I don't remember what you did right off the bat. I can't recall. But we spent years doing that ministering in student ministry and alongside then Sam for both of us really helped us to grow and mature in being servants and, and working in the 
pictures for developing skills and I developed my, my musical chops really uh, in that environment, learned how to conduct choirs and orchestras and all these sorts of things. It was really a, a grand time, but outside of the activities, what was important to us and what I look back on now is how critical someone like that was in my spiritual And so I wonder in your life if you have people like that as well. And uh, we won't take a person-by-person person survey, but as if you're a believer here this morning and you had people like that in your life, would you just, can we see, anybody have that? Anybody have that in their life? People that help them grow as Christians? So you see all around. Thank you, honey. I see you. I still have your note in my wallet, by the way. Let's see. <laughs> So I want us to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 because it talks about this. And, and Paul here is writing to his protege, Timothy, who has now been given the assignment of, of taking on leadership of his own in different places throughout the region where they are spreading the gospel. Now we talked about this several, several weeks ago about how from that moment of Pentecost and the, the disciples speaking in the city of Jerusalem, the kind of, kind of the, the town square of Jerusalem, that the church then began to spread. And especially when the Apostle Paul comes along and is converted and becomes this just this powerhouse of missionary effort and zeal, the one who used to drag Christians to Jerusalem to be executed is now the greatest voice in the region for the cause of Christ. Now, if that's not the picture of what the gospel really is about, I don't, I don't know what else is to take someone who Paul says of himself that he is the worst of the worst. He's the chief of the least. He's the sinner among all sinners, and God takes him and brings him to righteousness, calls him from death to life, and then he becomes the one who really is the, the driving force behind so much of the early spread of the Christian church and the gospel of Jesus. And he refers to some of that here, where Timothy went with him on those trips, endured some of the same things, and now Timothy has been given his own uh, assignment of leadership. And so Paul says this to Timothy, chapter 3, Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So we'll stop right there. And he's just reminding Timothy, and this is not... This is not a boast. Paul's not boasting here. He's just, he's just spitting facts. He says, remember, you were with me. You, you heard what I taught. And we, there are other places where Paul says, what I have taught you is what was taught to me directly from the other apostles, the disciples who walked with Jesus, and from Jesus himself, because he had this personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? That's why he's considered one of the first apostles of the church, one of the, 
the hallmarks of that, one of the requirements to be considered an apostle with a capital A was that he had a personal connection to Jesus Christ. And Paul is able to claim that because of that miraculous event that happened on the road to Damascus where, where Jesus came to him and said, Saul, his name before his conversion, why are you persecuting me? And from there, his conversion begins to happen. And so he says, you, you've heard my teachings, which came from Christ and came directly from the other disciples. You've, you've watched how I've conducted myself. You've watched what my purpose is, my aim in life. Paul uses this sort of language often when he talks about an archer shooting a bow at a target or a runner running a race with endurance to get to the finish line. He talks about having the goal set before us, this prize that is out there in front of us. And so he speaks in that same language here, the aim of my life. How is my life directed and oriented? You've watched that. You've seen my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and you've seen me persecuted, and you've seen me suffer. Now, when he refers to these three places of... Um, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, these were three of the first places that they went around the Mediterranean Sea there. If you go and look at a map, you can see where Jerusalem is, and you can, you can see the, the path that they took. And in two of those places, on multiple occasions, plots were made to stone him, kill him, because he was preaching the gospel. And the local people wanted him stopped. And all of those he escaped except one. And I think that was in Iconium, if I remember correctly. Uh, you can go back and find, I think it's Acts chapter 13 and 14 is where this unfolds. You can, you can go and see what actually happened. But in one of those, he didn't escape. They stoned him, and they were pretty sure he was dead. The scripture doesn't really tell us if he was dead or wasn't dead. It says that the people who, who threw rocks at him believed he was dead. So much dead that they dragged him outside the city walls and threw him out into the rubbish pile and left him there. And then the scriptures in Acts record that the disciples came and gathered around him. And he rose. And the next day was back preaching the gospel. Now I don't know what kind of shape you have to be in to have been stoned with giant rocks to the point that People are pretty sure you're dead, but then you get up the next day and go back to preaching. But no matter how you slice it, that's miraculous. That's a work of God. Amen. And so he says, you saw this all happen to me. And he says, and yet from all of this, the Lord rescued me. And then he says this, indeed, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I struggle with this sometimes because I think, am I being persecuted? I mean, am I personally, like individually being persecuted? At this time in my life, I'm not sensing a lot of that. I'm not experiencing a lot of that. Now, we can talk about culturally, we can talk about uh, politically, we can talk about world events, right? Just the the, the, the turn of the tide, and, and he's going to actually talk about that here in a moment. Uh, we we mention this fairly frequently here, in the context of at least from our teaching at Christ Community Church. And this is this is just me. I know Jason and I are on the same page. Uh, 
I encourage you to be involved in your local politics, your national politics, have your opinions, have your ideas with friends. We don't fix it here. We are collectively, as a humanity, in a train car on the way to disaster. Because the battle is not with our neighbor and with flesh and blood and the guy down the street. Our battle is with powers and principalities of the air and the evil one and his minions. And there is a cosmic battle that is occurring. And the scriptures tell us that it will get worse before it's good. It doesn't mean we shouldn't strive. It doesn't mean we don't stand up for what's right. We don't stand up for what's, what's moral and for what's biblical. But it means we have to put it into a perspective that says, our, what is our mission then in this world? And that's where we'll get to that at the end here. And it'll wrap all the way back to the beginning of this passage. What is our mission? What are we to be about in this world? But whether we're experiencing direct persecution right now, or we see it as general persecution that might be happening in our world towards our beliefs, Paul states a truth here that if you love God, if you pursue that which is godly, you will experience persecution. And I just happen to believe, looking at Scripture and the way of the world, that 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 will just continue to be more of a battle and more of a struggle in our days to come. It, it's not going to roll back the other direction. There will be no Supreme Court or Congress or President or world leader who solves that problem. So, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And here's why I said what I just said about it's not going to get better. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. See, if, if, we are, if we are pursuing righteousness, the idea is that as believers in Christ with the, the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, we progressively, we continually, this is that sanctification I spoke about here in the last couple of weeks, become more Christ-like, we become more holy. It doesn't mean we, we necessarily cease to make mistakes, but I hope we make fewer mistakes as we go on. And there's a principle in Scripture where it says that we, we can hopefully become people who consciously choose what is right so that our sins are truly mistakes. They're failures, not a way of living. Not, we don't practice sinfulness. We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not seeking it and searching it and enjoying it and reveling in it and going, woo, yay for grace. In fact, the book of Romans says that's, that's, that's a, an offense to God to behave that way. Grace is there because we are still broken and we do still make mistakes, but God willing, as believers, as followers of Christ, we become people who pursue and are, are given permission to do that which is right. Whereas those who are still wrapped in evil, those who are still children of perdition, the Bible says in one place, children of sin, 
they have no hope, they have no choice but to continue to be slaves to that which is sinful. And just as there is progression of sanctification that guides us towards holiness, there is this progression of evil that Paul discusses that people tend to, to drift even more towards that which is evil and ungodly. And it says not only being deceived, but deceiving themselves and deceiving others. But then verse 14, how do we live then within that? Knowing that that's true, how do we live in that? Knowing that persecution is on the table, knowing that evil will continue to be evil and more so, how do we live? Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now this is an interesting section here because the reality has to be acknowledged that not everyone in this room grew up with the sacred writings, right? Some came to it uh, much later. I'm sure that in Paul's environment here, there are also people like that, but he's speaking to Timothy, remember, so he knows Timothy intimately, and he knows that Timothy was raised learning the ancient scriptures. And he, and he speaks to something important here, which is understand that at the time that this is written, this is not yet scripture in the formal sense that it is to us today. It's a letter from Paul to Timothy. And so when he says... You learned these sacred writings from the time that you were young. Which writings is he speaking of? Right? The Torah. What we, what we call the Old Testament. Those writings, the, the history of the people of God, the history of the world as the people of God saw it and experienced it. The prophecies of the Messiah, the judgment of the judges. All of those things, Paul says to Timothy, you knew those from the time that you were a child, and those prepared you to understand who Jesus is and to believe in him. That's what he means when he says the sacred writings were able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. That's why it's a mistake for us as Christians today to limit ourselves to the New Testament. It's the story of Jesus, certainly, but the story of Jesus does not start at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It begins much earlier than that. In fact, I think today, uh, if you've never looked at it, by the way, totally up to you, there's a thing called the Revised Common Lectionary. It's what's used in, in a lot of liturgical environments, and they have a calendar that they follow with scriptures that are laid out there for each uh, Sunday. And so around our city today, there are churches who are using the scriptures laid out in the Revised Common Lectionary, Today And they will speak those, they'll read them together, they'll preach from those, they'll have a homily or a sermon from those. And I think today's was one of those was talking about when uh, three visitors came to Abraham and Sarah when Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham did not yet have any uh, heirs really of his own as God had promised him. And these visitors came and said, Sarah's going to have a baby. And Sarah did what? She, she laughed. 
He said, I'm old. I ain't having no baby. That's a great story. I don't want to tell that whole story. But in that story, if you go back and read the Old Testament, there are three visitors there, but one of them is referred to in a very specific way. He is called the Lord. And it cannot be Jehovah God. It cannot be God the Father, because the Bible also says that no one has ever seen the face of the Father and lived. It is not the Holy Spirit, because he's, uh, it's, a, it's a dude, and he sits down and he eats. So who is it? It's Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. The story of Jesus doesn't begin with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It doesn't begin with, with, with the, the manger. He is pre-existent, and he is in the Old Testament. And Paul says here, you learned those things so that when Jesus came, you could recognize him. You could see him, and you knew it. He prepared you. This is why it's important for us, whenever we now come along, to believe in Christ. Whether it's from the time you were a child, somebody like me who just had it around me my whole life. You know, I, was in, I grew up in a preacher's home. Or we come to it later in life. Why it's important for us to read the scriptures just for ourselves. Not even necessarily to study, but just to take it in, to let, to let the word of God get in you. Um, my brother-in-law, David Crawford, gave the greatest gift to me when I was about 14 or 15. And he said to me, because uh, I was talking about how difficult it was for me to, to get up every day and study my Bible. He said, well, stop doing that. Just read it. Just read it. It's, it's bread. It's food. Get it in you, and it will do the work it's supposed to do. You will spiritually digest the word of God, and it will naturally do what it's supposed to do. So as you are living your life as a believer, that's critical for you, and it ties into this thing that comes back at the end here. So he talks about all these things. You, you've seen my life. You heard my teaching. You followed me. You endured some of the same persecutions with me. You saw how I worked through those. You saw what God did. You go back to what you know, you go to the word of God, you learn it, it gets in you, and it teaches you and instructs you about Jesus and your life in Christ. And he says in verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, ladies, don't turn off the switch. Because the word here for man is one that's used many times in the Greek. It's called, it's anthropos, anthropos. I don't know. I'm not a Greek scholar. I know how to use a Greek lectionary. But this is important. There's a different word that I'm not going to be able to remember. It starts with an A. Uh, like when it says, uh, a wise man will build his house upon the rock, and a foolish man will build his house upon the sand different word in the Greek, and it means man. The word here, anthropos, is, is translated almost every time as man, but in the Greek it means a human. Someone with a human face. It is not, this is not strictly relegated or limited to men right here. And that's a whole big conversation going on in the Christian world right now. It's annoying me a lot. This is for all of us here, that we see the word of God, that, that gift that has been given to us down through time of the collected 
words of God through his apostles and disciples and the prophets gives us instruction about who God is, what God intends, and what he wants for us to do and be. And as such, that scripture is profitable. It's good to teach us, to prove things to us, to correct us, and to train us for what? Righteousness, it says. It's training us for righteousness so that every person, everyone with a human face, may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, I love to refer to that passage out of Ephesians. You might, you might get tired of it, but it's in there and I'm going to use it again. Every good work. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that we're saved by grace because we have faith. We hear the message. We have faith that it's true. And God says, yep, here's this favor poured out upon you. I'm going to forgive your sin. I'm going to bring your life. And you don't deserve it, but I love you so much. I'm going to do it anyway. And you didn't do anything to earn it. Nobody's better than anybody else. Everybody's in the same place. And everybody can receive the same measure of my total grace. Awesome. And when that happens, I'm going to rescue you and save you to the purpose of doing the good works that I planned for you before the foundation of the world. I have something in mind for you, and if you will believe, I will set opportunities before you in your life to do good works. And this is why, and I, and I forget this too, I don't think about this all the time, and I wish I did, because I think it would make my life of service even richer, but... But friends, anytime, okay, you're walking through your day and an opportunity comes up to do a good work. God planned that for you. Like he thought about it ahead of time. Amen. So you know, when that moment happens, you're going to get an opportunity to do something good. And when we say something good, we mean something that, that in some way glorifies the name of God. It doesn't have to be shouting the name of Jesus at the street corner. It doesn't even have to be necessarily religious in nature. Having compassion towards someone who is in grief could be a good work. Being kind to someone who's having a rotten day at the grocery store checkout line. Seeing someone in need and in trouble and and seeing that not only their physical needs are met, but, but perhaps speaking to their spiritual needs is a good work. Being open to the opportunities that God puts before you is a good work. And then here's where it wraps around back to the top, is what if you looked at your life and said, I need to be the kind of person that the others around me who are also following Christ, that we could have discourse and conversation together and say, I'm better as a believer because I've seen what you've done. You impacted me by the way you lived your life for Jesus. And the other person says, well, guess what? You've impacted me by the way that you lived your life for Jesus. What if we were all more Paul and Timothy together? Like living in a way where I want my life to influence yours for Christ and to encourage you. We call that in, in, in religious terms, we call that being edified in the church. Lift it up together. Kind of that, 
A rising tide lifts all boats. What if all of us were, were participating that way, where we wanted to live our lives so authentically for Christ that we would be encouraged and mentored and taught by the lives of one another? That's the mission, friends. Those good works aren't just for the people we do good works for, and they're not just for us. They also edify and lift up the believers around us who are engaged with us in those activities or who see it or hear the testimony of it. So when I asked you that question at the beginning of who in your life fits that role of having encouraged you, you look at me, anyone around you asking the question or giving the testimony of you? Your spouse, your friends, your children, your neighbors, people in your life group, wherever. And it's not to check off a box. It's not to feel better. It's not to pat yourself on the back. It's to, it's to glorify the name of God among everyone around us his purpose, that in this world where evil will continue to just go down the rails, we are being trained for righteousness and we live it right in the middle of a world that wants to persecute us. But we do what Paul did and we instead endure. Amen? I want you to think about that. I'm going to try and think about it. Am I living in such a way that I'm encouraging the ones around me? Not just in life, but in spiritual life, Christian life. And if the answer is no, God help me. Not in a bad way, like God help me, like no, like God help me. Just help me. He says that those who seek him will find him. So if you need help with that, seek him out. Let's sing one last song together that I think speaks to this really well. It talks about the beginning of this being raised to life.